This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Spiritual Ignorance, recorded May 22, 2011, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So recently, um, I've been kind of going back through and looking at some different readings that I did on my own path. And one that always strikes me is the teachings of Christ, of Jesus, in the Gospel of Thomas, and some of the quotes in particular. And the Gospel of Thomas is just a kind of a compilation of a, of a series of quotes of Jesus. They're separate from the Bible. You don't find these uh, passages or at least most of them you don't find in the Bible. The Gospel of Thomas, though, is, uh, was found in a clay jar in Egypt somewhere along the way. And it was supposedly, they were put there at the time of Christ, supposedly a cleaner version. In the Gospel of Thomas, and we use this, this quote a lot at the center, first place I ever heard it was Joel, great quote, because it's just very rich. It's pointing to something that's very worthwhile looking at. Jesus' followers said to him, when will the kingdom come? When will it come? And he said, it will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, look here, or look, there it is. Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread upon the earth, and people do not see it. It is here now, but we don't see it. We don't recognize it. In fact, we do see it, we don't recognize it. We do see it because it is what is seeing. It is everything that we see and everything that we experience. It's just that we don't see it as it actually is. We see it through context. This context we could refer to as spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. Now, in the dictionary, ignorance is defined as a passive absence of knowledge, which is very different from this spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance is an active Process. It's an active ignoring process. It's not a passive lack of information at all. It is full of information, and that is what gives it its power. It sounds like we are actively ignoring it, so we are doing something. We are doing this actively. It's willful, but in fact... It's not particularly willful at all. It is actually taking place in a more or less unconscious way. And it is constantly at work in many, on many different levels. We have just our gross beliefs and stories about the world and about what everything is, who everything is, how things ought to be. But then on a more subtle level, we have just this ongoing chatter that, that is actually 
subliminal. We, we're not even particularly aware of it. Sometimes maybe yes, sometimes maybe no. But it's this ongoing chatter that is telling us, defining the world for us. And it slips back and forth between the gross beliefs and stories and then the subtle chatter. And it's all the time going on, moment to moment. So the reason that this has such power, that it is such a huge distraction, is that we are identified with it. It is who we are. It is our identity. And because of this, we don't question it. We don't question its reality. Now, identification is this active emotional process that I described. This constant movement, reifying what we want to be a certain way and pushing away what we don't. Now, what we discover if we look into this process is that it is fear-based. Fear is at the core of it. It is driving it. Well, why would that be? Well, our heart, our own heart, our own beingness knows that we are thinking ourselves into existence moment by moment. We, we recognize that on some level. Even the, the most deluded person knows that in their heart. But the problem is, we don't even allow ourselves to recognize that we know that. We cover it up with lies instantly. We cover it up with stories instantly because we don't want to see that. This is an existential fear is at play at the heart of this process. And because of this fear and this constant movement to cover over what is true, to recreate the sense of me, we are constantly identifying with this fiction. And we struggle to get away from this actual non-existence of this process, the non-existence of this sense of me, this sense of self, which is a fiction. We don't want to know that. And so we don't actually see it. We spin the story of I to keep from remembering this little thing which we know, which we actually recognize on a certain level. This is the spiritual ignorance. This is it in a nutshell. What is it hiding? It's hiding God. It's hiding consciousness itself. It's hiding who you really are. Your true identity is being buried and covered over by this process. But when we, whenever we glimpse what's beneath our thoughts, you know, if we just happen to have a moment where we just aren't noticing thought and we're not having any emotions, the mind immediately fills it in with something because that space is terrifying to the self, to the sense of me. It's terrifying because it means 
that I don't exist. But this stays. It's not what we think. Saint Bonaventure, another uh, a Christian uh, mystic, states, Our mind, accustomed to the darkness of beings and the images of things of the senses, when it glimpses the light of the Supreme Being, seems to itself to see nothing. It does not recognize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of the mind. So when we see this space, this nothing beneath our thoughts, we're seeing the divine, but we don't recognize it because we have fear of it that is based on our false identity. And so we bury it, we cover it over. Seems to itself to see nothing. It does not recognize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of the mind. So the fear of being nothing continues to support spiritual ignorance right in the face of God. It's so sweet the way this works. And all of our definitions of self are movements to resolve the fear because what we want more than anything else is to, is to be what we truly are, to recognize our true identity. And so we struggle. We feel insecure. And so we strive to feel secure. We amass knowledge about the world. We make friends and we identify our enemies. We grasp for wealth and control, and we find security. But it's not secure. We believe it's secure, but it's not. The security only masks the true insecurity, which is always there. Always there for the sense of self, because the sense of self is totally imaginary. We can never make it secure. And so we are always striving to make it secure. So in a sense, it is imagination convincing itself through imaginations that it is not an imagination. It's pretty amazing. Now, it's not just folks on the spiritual path that are seeking God. Everyone is seeking God. Most people don't know that's what they're seeking. Seeking happiness, whatever. It's all seeking God. Wanting to be free of insecurity. Wanting to be free of conflict. Hedge fund managers and drug addicts have the same need. But it is the same need that spiritual seekers have. We all have it. Seeking the kingdom is our whole movement in life. Our only goal is to find this kingdom but as Christ said at the beginning, 
It's already here. Happiness is our nature already, but we don't know that. Why? Because we are so busy identifying with spiritual ignorance. We, that whole process continues to play, hiding our truth. And as we said before, we are afraid to experience ourselves as we truly are. In a real sense, I mean, if you look at our, the way we handle our emotional issues, we are afraid to experience fear. We are afraid of fear. We grasp at our grasping. If we're bored, we struggle to be free from boredom. We will not allow these emotions to be there just as they are. Now, another quote by Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. He says, If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the kingdom. Now, when he, when he makes this statement, he's not saying that we need to just, you know, shun everything and, and go and live in a cave somewhere. It's something about how we hold the world, how we cling to the world. We blame others when we're unhappy. We're dishonest so that we can feel better about ourselves. Always striving to feel better. We're always moving away from what is here now. How we actually feel. So as there is a need for a, a, a naked honesty about our immediate experience. If we actually look deeply into the nature of our grasping and our resisting in the world, we begin to see something profound. We see that it is totally futile. We are never going to achieve happiness in this way. It doesn't work. Instead of remaining ignorant, we have a choice. We can look. We can start to examine our experience. Simone Weil, a Christian mystic, had this to say about that. She says, one of the principal truths of Christianity, the truth that goes almost unrecognized today, is that looking is what saves us. Looking is what saves us. We recognize how attention is conditioned just by looking into it. We see, we see when we just watch, when we are willing or capable of just watching our reactivity in the world, we start to see how it's conditioned. We don't will what is happening. It's just bubbling up. It's like we have buttons and they get pushed. And then there's a reaction. 
just by seeing a moment of this can cut through eons of conditioning, just by seeing it, just by looking. But in order to do this kind of looking, we need a committed path, a committed practice. We discover, and you know, I think most of us probably have had this experience. Uh, anybody that's been on the path and meditating for a while, you discover that you can't just do one sporadic meditation. It's like if you don't actually commit to it as a daily practice, it just falls away. You forget about it. You know, three years later, you go, you know, once I was going to do this meditation practice. But, ah, what happened? Maybe I'll try again. Well, I guess it's through that kind of experience that we discover that, oh, you know, I need to really commit to this. I need to vow. I need to go deeper. And the way we do that is we discover why we want to do it. It's not just some superficial thing. We realize, as I said earlier, the absolute futility of striving and struggling to be happy. We need to get beneath our grasping so that we can see it as it actually is. And we begin to see what was otherwise hidden. Almost immediately when we do a practice, we start to glimpse some things. If we're doing a breath practice, we begin to notice the breath in a way that we never saw it before. It's this naked sensation. We never noticed this. We never noticed the timeless quality of a rising and passing sensation. Now, have you ever noticed when there are these moments in your life when you, you've like had a nap, maybe, and you wake up from the nap and for a moment you don't know where you are. You're just like, whoa. How many people here have had that experience for just for a moment? Yeah, it's pretty common. You wake from the nap and suddenly you don't know where you are, when it is. It's like a, a, a grand confusion, only you don't care for a moment. And then, if you, if you can observe this, you realize very quickly the mind comes in to fill in the gap. And it is that chattering mind of, of spiritual ignorance moving in and taking over. But when you've been doing a practice for a while and you have one of these experiences, it's like the bell goes off. And this is a moment to observe. And you can observe the process. You see the thoughts come in to own that moment, to take over that moment, to define it, to define you. Because before the mind came in, there was nobody there. The mind, in retrospect, will go, well, yeah, there was so. It's only the mind that tells us that there's someone there. Without that story, without the belief in that story, no, no self. 
So by sitting daily, we, we start noticing the quality of sensation. Since, you know, when we do spiritual practices, we're not really focusing on ideas so much. We're really just coming into the moment-to-moment experience of sensations. Breathing, bodily sensation. Even doing mantra is very much the same. Because after a while, the conceptual component falls away and it just becomes this sensation we call sound. Or the sensation we call thought. So gradually, instead of stirring the worldly pot like this, like we've always done, it starts to slow down. And by looking, not by doing anything about it, we just start to see that it's, there's, a, there's a futility in it. There's no need to be so driven by it. And the stirring begins to slow down. And if we drop deeper into our practice, more and more, we'll have these moments where it stops and it will start to go back the other direction. It's the backward step they talk about in Zen. We begin to recognize there is something else here. We develop a deep interest in what is here rather than what could be here or what has been here. And so committed attention arises organically. It catches on. like the meditation that we've been doing suddenly is doing us. Now we can observe the world in this moment and we begin to find all kinds of very interesting things. We start to see through the fabric of what this is and we see more and more the, the pointlessness of grasping at anything. We see the nature of thought It's just arising and passing. It's like lightning. It strikes. It's done. Unless we want to reify it and grasp it, then it's there again and again. And then it seems to be something solid. But it isn't when we're not grasping. When we have a settled mind, we're not grasping. And then we can just settle, relax. Thoughts arise, they pass away. Emotions are an energetic display. Waves arising and passing. Even striving for some kind of intellectual understanding about the spiritual path, about truth, falls away. There's no point. What are you going to do with, with a story, with another story, another belief? more and more you see deeply that it's not about belief at all. It's about something that is here and now, that is prior to all mediation, 
prior to all metaphor. Our nature is not something to be believed. It can't be clung to. It can't be grasped. Because it's already here. And when we grasp for it, we can't find it suddenly. Because we're, we're reaching out, trying to find it. It's already here. So in our practice each day, we rest attention and we discover silence. We discover stillness. All of this movement, sensations, it's all moving through the stillness. Moving through. Arising, showing itself. Hey, and it's gone. And then there's a new one. It's gone. And we begin to shift from the world of form. We begin to recognize this is transient. But what, what is here always is always here. The silence, the stillness, this awareness. Resting attention on sensation, we just recognize the space in which it flows. We are discovering the kingdom. It's already here. Consciousness discovers itself when stories are no longer taken to be the reality. The reality, the real, is what is looking. It is what is aware. Beliefs and stories are burned up, literally burned up, in the light of awareness. Once our practice takes us deep enough and we begin to see clearly, it is like a fire. This, this attention is like a fire because when we see we see the nature of what it is that we're looking at. The story, the belief, the feeling, the anger, the frustration. We recognize it just as it is, arising and passing. It is radiances of consciousness. When we first start doing our practice, and we're first having these little moments of seeing, it's like little sparks are being generated. Little sparks of fire. And at some point, the sparks ignite. And there is this fire. And it begins to burn and it blazes up on the path. And this is the process on the path when we begin to really awaken. Because everywhere we turn, no matter what we look at, we are discovering the same reality. On my path, I had this experience that was so powerful because everything was just like this, burning up, burning. The world is on fire. Regarding this fire in the Gospel, Thomas, 
Jesus says, Whoever is near to me is near the fire. Whoever is far from me is far from the kingdom. So, whoever is near to Christ experiences this burning through of ignorance. But what is the Christ? It's the virgin birth. It's not the merging of opposites. It's non-dual. It's the seeing that everything is one, whole. And through this, we relinquish the identity with this imaginary self, this historical self. This is the birth of beingness. Beingness. I mean, to use the word birth, it's only a birth because it is suddenly recognized, but it was always there. Always there as the unborn. In Hinduism, this is referred to as the I am by Hindu sages such as Ramana and Sargadatta. Not I am this or I am that, but I am. Beingness itself. This is the discovery. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. kingdom is here now. I am. Here's another quote from the Thomas Gospel. He who knows everything else but does not know himself knows nothing. So as long as we struggle with our stories, we are missing the truth. Another one says, if you do not know yourself, then you dwell in poverty, and you are poverty. In spiritual poverty, poverty. We're always striving. Spiritual ignorance. We're always striving for something more. Symbolized by the cross. The cross is an interesting metaphor. And see it this way. The horizontal piece is the, is, is the movement of the mind to reach some kind of resolution. And it goes on forever. It is endless. But the vertical is rooted in just now. It doesn't leave this moment. It's just here now. Presence. Presence. In your absence, you discover your presence. The presence of awareness. Whenever you 
you'll find yourself happy. Now just take a look in your life. It is never for a reason. It doesn't matter if you think it was for a reason or not. It was never for a reason. Happiness is already there, and it's just for a moment it shows itself. We can attribute it to a reason, but that is just clinging to self-stories. Happiness is our nature. It is the absence of reasons. You, just as you are now, you are already without self. You already are this reality. You are already without conflict, without opposition. You are the unborn. You said happiness is the absence of reason. Is that absence of reason? Is that just a saying? You're just what I'm saying is what what I'm basically saying is that when we try to find a reason for our happiness, we are fooling ourselves. There is no reason. Our happiness (coughs) is prior to all reasons, prior to all events. It is it is non-historical. And when we bring history into it and we believe that history, then we can't find our happiness and we start to struggle for it. That's the point. Yes. So whatever arises in this world, it is its own expression within consciousness. Like waves in the sea. When we take them to be mine, we suffer. We are in opposition. God loves to create, and that's what all of this is. St. Isaac, the Syrian, a Christian mystic from way back, he says, enter eagerly into the treasure house that lies within you, and so you will see the treasure house of heaven, and the two are the same. And there is but one single entry to them both. The ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within you and is found in your own soul. Dive into yourself, and in your soul you will find the rungs by which to ascend. So, there you are. <laughs> so are there any questions or comments or anything? Yes, yeah. You, uh, you opened the, the talk with some mention, I can't reconstruct it right now, but something to do with context. And uh, it got my attention because I, for years I've been living with what I thought was a clever insight that uh, all meaning is contextual. No, nothing that means anything except in some kind of framework, you know. Yeah. And then about halfway through, you're talking, uh-oh, even the framework is bogus. Because <laughs> all no. the elements of the context are equally non-contextual. Now, then we can have contexts, all kinds of contexts, and they're perfect. But at the core, 
It's not. That's what makes it possible to have a context. Our nature is non-contextual. So we can take on any flavor, any color. Yeah, Pat. Um, I thought when we're reading Ramana Maharshi, and I can't never have this right, but the last chapter that I am Aham or something. Yeah, I am Vritti or Aham. That's it. Okay, I am. And when it says that the that I am, which is that's what that's supposed to be, I am Vritti or something like that. But I am is the, uh, the com- composed of the, the first and last letter of Sanskrit, which is. A and H A. And I was thinking, was that where the aha moment came from? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe. Yeah. I don't think that's what Ramana had in mind. But, <laughs> but I think you're onto something. I like the connection. Because I am too, and I am. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's saying it in that passage. I put it together. Yeah, well, that's good though. I mean, because it is an aha moment. But what he's saying in that passage is that that the I am is the beginning of the alphabet and the end, and it encompasses everything in between. Everything within it arises out of the I am, the beingness itself, awareness, this timeless presence of being. So I noticed that you ended your talk with a tear. Yeah. And just yeah. <laughs> it's a sweet. It's a sweet truth that we have. It's full of sorrow and bliss. It's both. It's a combination of all qualities. It's just this. I don't know why. Do you have a question? <laughs> do you um, do you live in that? Well, I, I take it as a response to the the sweetness of truth, um, to the sweetness of sorrow. I don't know how I live. Every moment is fresh and new. It's always something new arising. You come to appreciate what's here because you know that it's just here now. This is it. This is all you will ever have, this moment. And in this moment, you see, you are experiencing the totality of being in that moment, right here. And that's how I live. Yeah, Mark. Uh. About um, three or four months ago, the last time we had tea. No, no, I take it back. This was the first time we had tea. This is a couple of years ago. I, I asked you a question. And the question was essentially, um, I, I was talking to you about a musician that I really, really like, and uh, and how how I feel really deeply moved by this particular kind of music. And I said, if this person were to wake up, would he? feel motivated to continue writing this music and creating this thing that, you know, I at least feel, not just me, uh, feels really moved by. And you said, yeah, why not? Uh, you said something more or less like that. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. So, I, I'm, so I'm taking that, and then I'm combining that with something that Joel said last week. Um, 
when, uh, I don't remember if somebody asked it or he said it in the context of another point he was making, that if somehow everybody were to become awakened, the world probably wouldn't be quite as interesting. <laughs> wouldn't be as much fun. And uh, what, I took, uh, what I took him to mean by that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that maybe this composer or maybe people that are creating or doing in the world where they're doing, wouldn't, wouldn't, because they wouldn't really feel motivated to, because a lot of that is being driven by some kind of desire or passion for the world and the mind, etc. So, I'm going back to my first question. Uh, now I'm no longer satisfied to the first question. You started this. <laughs> Actually, you started this. <laughs> I have no idea what you like. Which is, uh, it's not answerable. Every time I do this, like, I know it's not answerable. But uh, I guess what where I'm sticking is, is I feel that maybe I feel identified with some of the things in the world that I think are beautiful or moving, and I would like to contribute to that or participate in that in some way. It's like, and there's a part of me that's like, well, God, if I were to wake up, that would just be out of my life. It'd be gone in some way. Now, I don't know that that's really true, but there's, there's this. Thing because, well, you know, things would matter less. You know? Well, you know, now, given that most of this is just intellectual conjecture. Yeah, we don't have, I'm not but on the other hand, there is a piece there. There is a piece there. Um, with awakening, it's an appreciation of things exactly as they are. It's not, I don't know why one would become, you know, bored and decide not to do anything. You couldn't decide to not do anything anyway. I noticed that, in my own experience, I've been a nurse for, I don't know, probably, I think I've been a nurse for about 24 years or so when with Awakening happened. And then my job suddenly became a lot better. I mean, I was better at it. I enjoyed it more. Probably the first 15 or 20 years of being a nurse, I mean, it was pretty horrible. I mean, a lot of the thing is like being on the front lines of the, you know, war zone. But now it's much different. It's much lighter in a lot of ways. It has a quality of just this joyous thing where, you know, you go in and there's this person and they're suffering and they have problems and stuff. And, oh, it's a sweetness. You just get to be them for a while. You get to languish in their problems and in their sorrows and feel how rich they really are. It's a good thing. I, th I think nursing, my, my job, has just blossomed since then. So, so I don't think a musician would just become some kind of a schlock musician. <laughs> I think they'd probably be really good. I, I don't know. Yeah, Joel. Well, we also have, look, we have uh, examples from this, like Rumi, a uh, poet, and uh, I mean, certainly his poetry uh, benefited from you know, his, uh, his awakening. Uh, uh, what's his name? Hazra Inyakam was a musician and you know, continued to be a musician and so forth. Uh, so you know, there have been uh, many, uh, many people who have woken up and the means of expressing it has been in one of the arts. So we can, you know, that, uh, he didn't just stop playing the sitar or whatever, or Rumi didn't, certainly didn't stop writing poetry. In fact, he wrote about how he couldn't stop writing poetry. <laughs> you know, it just 
came out of it. I only wrote this way because I had to. It's one of his lines. That, that sounds like it settles your question yeah, right down. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mozart said that he didn't originate the music. It came through him. There you go. So if he had been enlightened, it would still come through him and he could write it. And I don't see where there'd be much difference. I think you're absolutely right. It's bubbling up out of where is it coming from? It's coming from the I amness itself. Whether we, whether we know it or not. It is bubbling, it is always bubbling up out of that which we truly are. Good point. Pat. The man that wrote, um, oh gosh, Walsh, the one that wrote, yeah, he talks about this, all of a sudden these thoughts just came to him, through him, and he started writing. And uh, that's how he wrote you know, those books, through that. And, you know, when you have an inspiration, it just, comes from. My sister is able to write really heart-wrenching letters. If you want you know, a doctor to do something, just ask her to write a letter. It'll just tear it apart. And she says, I don't know, I just write it. I just write it down. And she says, God doing it. You know, and I, it is, I believe her when she says that. This, these letters turn out, wow, that's just, you know, how could this doctor turn you down? <laughs> and most of the time they don't, if, if she has to do that. But you know, if you, even if you're not a great writer, even if you're not coming up with wonderful things, if you just watch your own mind, you realize you don't even know where your thoughts are coming from. Are you having your thoughts? They're just happening. You can go, well, well okay, I'm going to have a thought now. Okay, I'm having a thought. But where did that come from? You see, it's like you can't find the beginning of this thing. It's like it's just coming out of where? It's coming out of the I amness. It's bubbling up. But we go, oh, yes, I had that thought. That means I must think that. I believe that. Yes. But we need to take a, actually take a look. We start realizing that these emotions that we feel, what are they really? Are they mine? Who is the me that is having them? And so this really is the process of what in, inquiry, which is one of the spiritual practices that we can do on the path where we then begin to look to see who is it that is having these experiences. Hmm. But we, we see through the intellect, we look deeper and deeper and deeper. We just come down to the naked awareness. Yeah, Steve. Uh, first, thank you for a great talk. And, um, you, know, you titled it... Uh, spiritual ignorance and uh, and I'm going to assume that the fear that you first talked about is, is the ignorance uh, part of, of, of yes. the talk and then you had a Simone Weil uh, quote about the looking and the looking and then you wove in uh, the fire uh, aspect which is I guess in my experience is almost a, a symptom of the looking could say. Yes. Uh, is, would you agree with that? Yes. You, you look and then you get consumed with this this fire burns things away. Yes. But what remains then in my experience is this silence. Yes. The not real silence but the stillness you could say. Yes. And out of that everything seems to form but 
kind of burned up this sense of I. Yes, that's exactly it. And then, yeah. uh, and then you just experience the world, and you really don't know where things come from. Where exactly. Like that. Is, that, is that correct? Exactly. Yes. Yes. You don't know. And that's really what happens when we do this, these kinds of practices. When the fire burns, we come to this place of not knowing. Not knowing. This is uh, a different kind of ignorance altogether. Spiritual ignorance. We know so much. We're using what we know to bury what is real. But when we come to not knowing, this is just being what is. This is the not knowing of the silence of awareness itself. Very different than a mindful of thoughts and beliefs and emotions that we identify with. Nothing wrong with thoughts and emotions, by the way. It's when we take them to be real me that they become a problem. But yes, thank you. Yeah, no. Yeah, um, as you were talking, it made me uh, think about an experience I had in my world of uh, business. Uh, there was a gal who was doing her uh, PhD at the University of Washington on synchronicity. And so she contacted different business people, uh, like Tom's from Tom's Toothpaste, Ben and Jerry's, Calvert Investment, for some reason me. <laughs> And uh, and what she uh, what she wanted she asked a bunch of questions and one of the things that she was curious about how it was that people were able to develop a certain amount of success and she was focusing on her study on um, entrepreneurs who were doing socially responsible business in the world and uh, and it was interesting when she wrote her book and finished her work about her PhD. She came, she came out with this one thing that we all had in common, that we had some way of separating ourselves from whatever it was that we were doing and the identity of our work, whether it was someone who was a runner or a meditator, just it wasn't by <coughs> logically thinking how to access a particular marketplace and develop a theme. It was, everyone was accessing that place of synchronicity through some way of separating themselves from who they, from who their identity was. And so, so it's curious, it's another piece, so where is it that you're going? You're going into that place of uh, expanded consciousness, the flow, the zone, however you want to call it. I mean, you hear the same thing with people that are in the world of sports, you know, quarterbacks who just know where they, they throw the ball and they just know where it's gone. Or same thing in golf or in baseball, pitchers too. So I think somehow they, they do, they disassociate from identity. That's because you know, our nature is this reality. And it doesn't matter what we believe or whatever our stories are, it's all this miracle that's taking place. You know, we, we, we just get kind of stuck in our stories about who we are and who this is and what this is, when in fact we don't actually know what any of this is at all. You know, I've used this thing with my hand before. It's like, you know, this is a hand. Yeah, it's a hand. I'm not denying it's a hand, but that's not what it is. 
we have a we, we lay a template of, of of beliefs, stories, memories, images, feelings over this to to know what it is, and that functions perfectly in our world. But it never becomes a hand, not really. It's not what we think. And when we begin to really see that in, in its nakedness, in its timeless nature, then what happens is it transforms what we are. It doesn't change, like I said, with my job. It didn't make me become somehow uh, unable to function at work. It actually enhanced everything, seemingly. It's another story, of course, but... <laughs> but you see, it's just... And these, these truths are out there and you hear it in all kinds of philosophical discussions and teachers and, and you know, trainers. They use, they fall back because these things are based on reality. They, when we go deep enough into it, we begin to actually see, we recognize the truths within us. So, yeah. So are there any other pressing questions or comments? Yes. I just wanted to continue a little bit more about um, believing our thoughts. Yes. I saw this really interesting TV show about obsessive compulsive disorder, and it had different people who you know had thoughts arising that they were believing, and they would believe them again and again. But they were thoughts like one woman um, thought that every time she heard about a murder, that she herself was going to commit a murder. So it was quite fascinating to me. This an individual who has a thought arrived, where did the thought come from? And then this belief comes and said, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be a murderer now. You know, So she felt she couldn't be around sharp knives or anything because her belief was that she would then take the knife and attack someone with it. So it made me think about my own thoughts of um, being a self, you know, this this obsession with self and being a self arises again and again, and then, you know, the belief, you know, tells That's me this is true, and, you know, I, I just exactly. saw this correlation between the two. And it, there is a correlation. It's like, because we do this in every moment. We believe the thought that is arising, we take it to be real, and then that defines the next moment for us. And it just keeps on getting what they call the monkey mind and... and traditional literature about meditation. One we call a disorder, but the other we call normal. Well, now, in the case of obsessive uh, compulsive disorder or in uh, psychoses, different things like this, these are all, they're based on conditioning, some kind of conditioning. We could say, you know, from the medical point of view that it's, you know, genetic conditioning or it's some kind of uh, metabolic conditioning or whatever, but, but the bottom line here is that it's conditioning. And and it's all passing. Anybody see that movie, um, A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. This guy had been just this totally um, deluded individual, totally having total fantasies in his life about everything. And then he would suddenly realize, oh, that was all, or the therapist would tell him, oh, that was just, that was just one of your fantasies that you created and you took it to be real. And at the end of the movie, he had learned something, and it was very interesting. He had learned to recognize his mind as it is, and he knew that it was just another delusion. 
when it would do crazy, he would see visual hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And he just knew that it was just another one. And he was recognizing his mind. It's a very spiritual realization. So, yeah. Well, let's, let's call the formal part of the morning to close. And you're welcome to stick around and, and have tea. Till we meet again, peace to you all.